Brendan did an absolutely outstanding job of teaching us on Mark 9, verse 42 through 50. And in that, we looked at what is simply a sober warning. A sober warning from Jesus about the consequences of sin, the dangers of sin. And in many ways, his sobriety hasn't changed at all this week as we hit this topic on discipleship and divorce. So chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, let's read it together. I'm just going to have to keep moving this around. Otherwise, you'll hear me every breath. That will not be impressive. Mark 10, verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. For from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another... She commits adultery. Let's pray. Well, Lord, the song that comes to mind in this moment is, I need you. Lord, the truth is we all need you in this moment to understand your word. Lord, as you're discipling your disciples, may we recognize this morning, you're you're not just discipling them. You're discipling us. You're helping us to understand your ways for our lives. And so, Lord, as we come to this most serious topic of of marriage and divorce and remarriage, Lord, did you open our eyes to behold your word? Would we not go with what culture prescribes for us? Would we go with what you have ordained for us? Let your truth be truth this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, whenever you begin a preaching series, particularly as a lead pastor, when you're splitting up the text and so forth, what you always do, or at least what I always do, is you start at the beginning in Mark chapter 1, and there's certain parts as you flick through the book that you just hope Brendan's going to be on. You know, there's certain parts that you just think, that's probably a week to be away right there. And this, in all honesty, this text on divorce would be one for me where you flick ahead And you're aware, man, that is going to be difficult. You see, from my perspective, there isn't a more difficult or complicated topic for a pastor to address than divorce. It's hard. It's complicated. And I have no doubt that there will be many of you in this moment that are experiencing numerous questions that you're hoping that I'm going to answer in this moment. Good questions. Important questions. Sincere questions that need to be asked. And I think what also makes this such a hard topic is the reality 
that for some of you here in this room, in this moment, this is difficult because you felt the heartbreaking effects of divorce. Because you lived it. Either personally or in your family. And you came face to face with the heartbreaking effects of divorce. And so that makes it hard. Because even as you hear this topic, and even as you come across this text, it brings back to mind the deep and sincere pain that season of your life was to you. And so it makes preaching this topic as a pastor very hard and difficult. And it's important from the outset of today that we therefore have realistic expectations for this message. I mean, this message... Given the time allotted for it, unless you want to be here till about 5 o'clock, we are not going to cover all of what the Bible says about marriage and divorce and remarriage. It's not designed to do that. My job in this moment is to preach Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, not what the whole Bible teaches in a systematic way about divorce. So you need to have realistic expectations as to whether all your questions are going to get answered, because I want to let you know they're not. And if you have further questions, I want to encourage you. Your pastors are here for you in this. We're not just paid to serve one day a week. We're paid to give our lives to this. And so as this text comes, if it raises questions for you, let us know. We want to bring God's word to bear on this topic to you whenever you want it so that you can learn from God's word and come in line with God's word. And if you have further questions, there's many resources that I would recommend to you. There's a great book called Divorce by John Murray, which I think is excellent reading on this topic. There's also a book, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage in the Bible by Jay Adams, which is the first book I ever um, read on this topic. And if you've got an ESV study Bible, which many of you have, there's an excellent addendum in your study Bible on divorce, which I think really explains so much of what the Bible teaches about. So you need to have realistic expectations that we're not going to cover all the ground of Scripture today on what the Bible says about divorce. And yet, I do want you to have realistic expectations that from Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, God will speak to us this morning. Because all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. It speaks to us. It's alive. And I think without doubt, God has much to tell us this morning from this text, which is in front of us. And so I have three points this morning. Number one, the intentionally hostile question, verses one through two. Number two, the carefully chosen response, verses three through five. And then thirdly, the divinely inspired teaching, verses six through twelve. I want us to examine the scene together. I want us to delve into what is actually going on here with Jesus. I want us to walk with his disciples and listen in accordingly. And then I'm just going to close by way of conclusion of asking the question, or at least answering the question, what then does this all mean? What difference does it make to us today? Because it does. Each and every one of us in the room, it has something to say to us. So let's first of all examine the scene, and here's point one, the intentionally hostile question. Let's look at verse one, which really sets the scene for what is taking place here. We read in verse one, and he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. 
In verse 1, Jesus' public ministry resumes. The clear training of disciples continues, and as the Son of God, he continues to make his way to Jerusalem. His work in Galilee is now done, and Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He is even now on his way to the cross to die as a ransom for many. And so, having concluded his ministry in Galilee, the pace of the gospel, this gospel which we'll see starting in chapter 10, starts to really increase. It's been quite slow in chapters 8 through 9. The, the, the speed of the text has slowed down, but in chapter 10, it speeds up again. William Lane says it this way in his commentary. He says, From this point on, beginning in chapter 10 forward, the narrative now moves swiftly and relentlessly towards its inevitable climax in Jerusalem. And so it does. The next chapter along, we will see Jesus enter Jerusalem. But this chapter will move swiftly to that end. And yet in verse 1, we see Jesus once again teaching the crowds. His popularity has not waned at all. Everybody still wants to see and hear Jesus. They want to be healed by Jesus. They want to bring family members that have demonic possession. They want to bring them so that they can be healed of this. Everybody wants to encounter Jesus. And so the crowds continue to gather around Jesus whenever they can. And it's as the crowds gather around Jesus on this day in the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan that the boys show up again. The Pharisees are indeed back. And they are back as hostile as ever. They don't want to chat. No, they have something far more sinister in mind for the Savior. Look at verse 2. It says, And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They have to understand this question is not a sincere question. This is not a group of guys saying, hey, I've just been thinking. We've been thinking on the way and just wondering, what do you think about divorce? They're not seeking to clarify the answer to what Jesus believes is right or wrong when it comes to marriage or divorce. They're not seeking to learn from the Savior's divine perspective in this moment. No, they're seeking to trap him. That's why it says that they were there to test him. They wanted to hurt him. They wanted to discredit him. They wanted to throw him under the bus. Okay, that's what they're there to do. They want to throw the Savior in this moment under the bus. They want to discredit him for all that will listen. And that's why they pick this question. You see, this question does appear at first value a little random, doesn't it? Think, why pick that question? Well, there's big reasons why pick that question. I mean, first and foremostly, you have to remember the recent history of these events and the geographical area of these events. Because here's the reality. Jesus here is in Perea, which means Jesus here is passing through the area that John the Baptist conducted his ministry, was imprisoned, and was eventually beheaded in. That's in part why the question. See, if you remember, John the Baptist was the guy that spoke to Herod Antipas, the man who now oversees this region of the world. John the Baptist discussed with Herod Antipas how he was wrong and sinful to take his brother's wife. She had wrongly divorced her brother. And ultimately that ended up, that conversation, and that confrontation, with John the Baptist being arrested and ultimately being beheaded because of his views on marriage and divorce. 
You remember back in Mark chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, I'll just read it to you. It says this, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. Do you remember that? Well, Jesus is back in the territory where that took place. And so as the Pharisees are throwing Jesus under the bus in this moment, part of their point is, hey, Jesus, what do you believe about divorce? And they know full well that Jesus is likely to align himself with what John the Baptist said. And in doing so, their hope was that even now Herod would get word of this, Herod would arrest him and hopefully behead him as well because of what he wrongly believes, at least in their mind, about marriage and divorce. This was a calculated question. It was a calculated question, know who's, knowing whose area this is. And it was a calculated question, knowing what the crowd would commonly believe about divorce. See, this is a specific and strategic question without doubt to confront Jesus and discredit Jesus in front of the crowd and quash his popularity. It was a well-known fact that Jewish law supported divorce. Everybody knew that. The crowd knew that. But what was hotly debated at this point in time and contested was what are the grounds upon which divorce can actually happen? What are the grounds for divorce? We know it's legal, but what are the grounds for it? And in all reality, what they're actually asking Jesus here is, listen, not what is, is it lawful for a man to divorce? They're saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce for any cause? And in Matthew 19, the parallel account to this, that's actually how they render the question to to Jesus. Is it right that anybody can get divorced for any cause? And they're asking that because the liberal and widely held view is that you could divorce for any cause. That was the understanding of the Jews. That was the liberal view. It was the wide view that, hey, I can get divorced for anything. And so if you don't like like your wife's cooking, you don't like the way she looks on a certain morning, you don't like the way she's done a certain thing, hey, no worries. Write her a bit of paper, divorce her, go on to the next one. They thought of women like we think of mobile phones. Okay, You exchange them after a certain time. You trade them in, you get a new one. That was the common view amongst Jews at this point. Because of a hostile and fallen view of what Moses says in Deuteronomy 24, divorce was the norm. And this crowd around Jesus at this moment would have assumed, sure you can, you can divorce for any cause. So they're trying to throw Jesus under the bus. They know you're going to believe what John the Baptist believes. Herod's not going to like it. And this crowd aren't going to like it. So Jesus, what do you think? James Edwards in his commentary says it this way. He says their objective was to maintain a permissive divorce policy, and the more permissive, the better. Shura summarizes the Jewish position on divorce thus. Divorce was relatively easy in those days, and the Pharisees and rabbis intended to keep it so. But the Pharisees reflected the view that marriage was a disposable contractual arrangement. So they did So Jesus is addressing the crowds. Picture the scene. Jesus is addressing the crowds. Pharisees emerge from the crowds and they say, hey, tell us about divorce. Let's talk about that for a minute. 
And in bringing up that question, they're seeking to throw him under the bus because they know this will probably lead to your death. Imagine what happened to John the Baptist. Remember that? Jesus, this is probably what will happen to you as well. And you see the crowds? They're going to disagree with everything you're saying. Your answer will discredit them. So Jesus, tell us. What do you think about divorce? And in verses 3 to 5, Jesus gives a carefully chosen response, which is my second point, the carefully chosen response. What is unique about the Savior and wonderfully wise of the Savior is he nearly always answers the Pharisees, if you notice, with a question. A carefully chosen question. A carefully chosen question to expose the foolishness of what they're saying. So this is what he says in verse 3. He answered them, What did Moses command you? (laughs) Now, it is just speculation, okay? This is just my musings. But I can't help but wonder if not this moment was mildly amusing for the Savior. If there wasn't a smile on his face as he asked this question, there was certainly one within. Because he is about to throw them under the bus, okay? They, They are trying to throw him under the bus, And in this moment, he's exposing them for what is taking place. And he is quietly confident that they are about to say something that is utterly stupid. They have been assessed by one greater than Moses in this moment. And so the one greater than Moses, knowing exactly what they're seeking to get at, simply asks them, hey, let me me ask you, what did Moses command you? I bet the pause was pregnant as they're trying to work out what they're going to say. And this is what they say in verse 4. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. It's already not going too well for these Pharisees in this moment. Jesus has asked them very specifically, what is it that Moses commanded you? Namely, Genesis 1 and 2. But they instead go to not a command of Moses, but a concession of Moses. Jesus is exposing their incorrect use of Scripture. He is exposing their incorrect understanding of Scripture. They are referencing here Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, where Moses does give a concession for divorce. But Jesus hasn't asked them that. Jesus asked them, what has Moses commanded you? And they point out, well, actually, yeah, he he said. He said, no, no, (laughs) I didn't ask you what he said. See, what has he commanded you? Jesus in this moment is showing them to be incompetent and clueless as to their understanding of Scripture. He's asked them a command. They give him a concession. And in verse 5, to complete throwing them under the bus, he says this. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Again, wry smile. It wasn't a commandment. Jesus knows it wasn't a commandment, but he said, "Uh, yeah, the commandment then. Yeah, this is why he did it for you. It's not a commandment. It is a concession. But why is this concession there? In Deuteronomy chapter 24, why is the concession there? Here's why. Because of your hardness of heart. Not just generally, but you guys. The concession is there because of you. See, the concession that Jesus is talking about here and the Pharisees are talking about here in in Deuteronomy chapter 24 was ultimately to protect women. It was there as a concession to protect women 
because of the common hardness of men's hearts. All too many Jewish men at this time thought of their wives as possessions. They thought of their wives like we think of mobile phones. They weren't there to serve their wife and treasure their wife and care for their wife and love their wife unto the Lord. Now their wife was to serve them, to care for them, to look after their needs. They thought of their wife like they would a possession. Yeah, I have a house, I have a car, I have a wife. Yeah, it's a nice life. That's the way they process it. As if they fell out with their wife, they would do many things to their wife. They would ignore her. They would withdraw from her. They would often abuse her because they would be so fed up of her. There was even concern during this era that if a concession wasn't giving, men could beat their wives to death so that they could marry somebody else instead. It was horrendous what was going on at this season of time. And so Moses gives a concession, making it clear, I'm going to make it possible for you to divorce your wife. Why? To protect your wife, to care for her. What of? Your stinking hard hearts. So imagine the scene. They erupt from the crowd. They quarter Jesus. So Jesus, what do you think about divorce? And he says, what, what did Moses command you? They don't offer a command. They offer a concession. And then Jesus says, clearly you don't even know scripture. It's not a command. It's a concession. But that concession to divorce, which is so commonly understood, was only there because you stink. Because the way you treat women is so inappropriate and hostile and awful. They're trying to throw Jesus under the bus. He throws him up under the bus, he's dead. It's genius. One greater than Moses was confronting them in this moment, who knew all things, including their hearts. And then in verses 6 through 12, he gives us the divinely inspired lesson, a third point. A lesson which is profound in nature because quite clearly Jesus isn't done yet. And so with the crowd listening on and the disciples up close, he wants to seize this moment to disciple them, to help them, to aid them, to teach them about God's original intention and purpose for marriage. What divine order has created in the importance of marriage and therefore then how God views divorce. And it's such a wonderful picture. Look with me at verses 6 through 9. He says, But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore God is joined together. Let not man separate. Early on in this passage, twice the Pharisees have asked Jesus about exceptions to marriage. Twice. And yet now in response, twice, Jesus declares God's vision and purpose for marriage. His original intention, his created order, and what a vision it is. A picture that was given, verse 6, from the beginning of creation. This is the divine order. This is the way he made it to be. The giving of a man and a woman, exclusive of all others, in holy union together in marriage. Different in roles but together in worth and value and splendor, and together then through the joy of sexual intimacy, they become one flesh before the Lord, given by God, started by God, created by God for his glory. God is at the beginning and end and author of all marriage. 
And he gives man and woman together in glorious union where they become one flesh before him, engraven and sealed by him personally. And so, verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the crowd just thought, well, I just think I can give my wife a bit of paper. I'm divorcing you. You're gone. Jesus, in effect, is saying, how dare you? God created this. He started this as a man and woman coming together for the glory of the Lord. And so what God has joined together, let no man separate. How dare he seek to give his wife a bit of paper and see her off. What God has joined together, let no man separate. The Pharisees, all they wanted to talk about was the exceptions. But what if, what if, what about? And Jesus says, no, I want to talk to you about God's grand design. Why marriage even exists what it's here for. John Murray says it this way. He says, Divorce is contrary to the divine institution and contrary to the nature of marriage, contrary to the divine action by which the union is affected. It is precisely here that its wickedness becomes singularly apparent. It is the sundering by man of a union God has constituted. Divorce, then, is the breaking of a seal which has been engraven by the hand of of God. Isn't that wonderful? Marriage didn't actually start with us. That's why we don't have the ability, whatever our culture says, to change it. Marriage was ordained and started by God as a man and woman coming together and forsaking all others, becoming one flesh together. And so what God has joined together, let no man separate. Well, the disciples would have no doubt had been a bit shocked by this as well. Because they too would have most likely thought, listen, I think you can get divorced for loads of different reasons. You know, if the women's indecent, which can mean like a whole load of things, hey? You know, don't like her cooking, don't like the, like the way she looked this morning. Surely it's okay to upgrade. So the disciples pulled Jesus to the side as they have want to ask him some more questions specifically about this. Look at verse 10 through 12. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. You know, as you read Jesus' responses in verses 9 and verses 11 through 12, it appears, at least at first glance, that therefore there is never any grounds for divorce, never any reason at all. And yet, I believe this would be a misunderstanding of this passage. Because quite simply, when you see this passage in context with other passages in Scripture, there are grounds for divorce biblically. See, as I said at the start, today isn't a desire to give a whole systematic theology of marriage and divorce. But if we were to do that, I would draw your attention to a couple of other scriptures in Scripture that are important when understanding grounds for divorce. And what you discover as you examine Scripture is there are two grounds for divorce as biblically defined. Number one, sexual immorality. In Matthew chapter 19, the parallel account to this, Jesus actually himself affirms that sexual immorality is a legitimate cause for divorce. He says it outright. You can divorce for sexual immorality. 
Now, he's not saying there even for a moment that if your spouse commits adultery, then just go ahead and divorce him. It's not required. It's not an edict. He's not saying you must. But given the gravity of sexual immorality, given the hurt that that can cause in a holy union, given the sorrow and violation that so often comes with it, it's clear that Jesus is saying, listen, on this grounds it is permissible. There is a time where divorce becomes necessary. There is a time when we will allow that before the creator of heaven and earth. So one reason for grounds for divorce legitimately is sexual immorality. Also, number two, is desertion. Desertion where a non-believer, or at least minimally somebody who is behaving for an ongoing period as a non-believer, deserts a believer. And Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That there's a time and a place when somebody is married to somebody who is not following and loving Jesus and they desert the home. After a time of this spouse seeking to pursue them and love them and chase them and give themselves to them, if this person wants to go, Paul is saying, let him go. You're free to divorce them. There's a time. You must let them go and move on. So Paul is not talking in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about incompatibility or irreconcilable differences or maybe if you've just fallen out of love. He's not about that. He's very specific. Married to an unbeliever. They're not loving Jesus. They're pursuing something else. Let them go. There's a time to let them go. Because they've deserted you and divorce is permissible. So friends, we have to understand that what Mark is doing here or what he's not doing here is giving us Jesus' complete systematic theology on divorce. Okay, that's not his intention. It's not the way he's writing this gospel. He's not seeking to give us in those verses, okay, let me tell you everything Jesus said about divorce and everything that the Bible says about divorce. That's not the point. He's giving us a narrative here. But what Mark is seeking to do is record for us the Savior's simple, forceful, and fundamental statement about marriage, the sanctity of marriage, and indeed God's purpose for marriage. That's what he's seeking to do here. He wants to help his readers hear and the crowds understand this is what Jesus believes about marriage. This is what the divine order is when it comes to marriage. Why is it here then? Here's why. After I tell you this at the front of a message today, I'm telling you near the end. Why is this text here? Here's why. It's here to teach us that being a follower of Jesus means aligning ourselves to God's original intention and purpose for marriage. That's why it's here. To teach us as Christians, as followers of Jesus, the need to align ourselves with God's original intention and purpose for marriage. That's what it's been about all along. If you go all the way back to chapter 8, verse 34, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and in turn us, about the need to deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow Jesus. Everything that's come after it is all relating into that. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? And what does it mean to deny myself? Well, it means serving others. It means understanding that like Jesus did, I need to lay my life down to serve other people. Even people that aren't from our tribe, that are attending different churches, going to different places they're doing things in the name of Jesus, would we cheer them on for his glory? Would we love them and assist them in any way that we can? And when it comes to our sin, the end of chapter 9, 
When it comes to our sin, we need to be taken that seriously. Because it will seek to rob us of the joy of following Jesus. It will seek to distract us away from the joy of truly spending our lives following Jesus. And when it comes to marriage then, here we have it. When it comes to marriage as a Christian, this is the vision for it. That we need to align ourselves with. We need to understand that marriage is between a man and a woman. So is gay marriage commendable? Never in the Bible. Because marriage didn't originate with us. Marriage originated with God. And he makes it clear and categoric in this verse. You want one verse to stand on that debate. It's right here. Verse 7. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. It's a man and a woman. And what God then has joined together, let no man separate. That's what Christians are seeking to align themselves to and understand as biblically defined. And if we're going to deny ourselves and follow Jesus, he's saying, listen, this is what it means for you then. This is what it means for you as my followers. So by way of application and conclusion, so what then does it all mean? What difference does this make to us today? Is it just to give us the corner pieces of our life so we understand what God says, what Jesus says about marriage and divorce? No, it's more than that. I think it has specific application to us depending on what season we're in. And so if you're married, listen, here's what this means. It means by the grace of God and for the glory of God, you hold your spouse's hand really tight. Marriage was not given or created by man. Marriage was given by the Lord. He was the one that created it in the beginning as a gift between man and woman, a gift before him. Whereas husband and wife come together equal in value and worth and splendor, but different in role, the man would reflect Christ and the woman would reflect the church, Paul tells us. That there would be differences in the way we operate, but together we would reflect to the world a city on a hill Christ's affection and love for his church. And so what, man, what God has drawn together, let no man separate. So friends, I want to encourage you, if you're married then as a Christian, you need to hold your spouse's hand really tight. Because before the Lord, he joined you together. And so let no man ever separate. And my friends, you need to have then, I want to encourage you, realistic expectations on your spouse. This is what I tell my wife regularly. (laughs) You need to have realistic expectations on your spouse. And you do. J.C. Ryle encourages us this way. He says, Do not expect too much from your partner. And remember that marriage is, after all, the union of two sinners and not of two angels. How true that is. You see a happy couple getting married, they are assuming they're marrying two angels. But within three months, they realize they've married a sinner. It's true. When you get married, it really is when sinners say, I do. It's the way it works. And yet sometimes we have expectations that are through the roof. We assume that we are actually marrying Jesus. And then a few weeks in, we realize, you're not like Jesus at all. And they're looking back at you and going, no, and neither are you. You know, therein lies some of the problems. James Edwards, in his commentary, says, Jesus does not conceive of marriage on the grounds of its dissolution, 
but on the grounds of its architectural design and purpose by God. The question then in our day of impermanent commitments and casual divorce is whether we as Christians will hear the unique call of God to discipleship in marriage. (laughs) How true that is. The unique call of God on our lives as Christians is that we hold our spouse's hand really tight whatever's coming. Because we realize, I said I do. And I'm aware that God joined us together. And so what God has joined together, let no man separate. And so I'm committed by the grace of God, whatever befalls us, to work in this through for his glory. That's Christianity. That's what Jesus is talking about. None of this stuff that they're talking about, about, oh, what about the exceptions? What about this, that, and the other? Jesus is saying, forget the exceptions. Hold your spouse's hand really tight because she's the one and he's the one that God's given you. So be committed to the unique call of God to discipleship in your marriage. Listen, if you're walking through things then in your marriage and you want help, your pastors are here to serve you. It's part of what we do. We don't just give ourselves to attending this on a Sunday morning. We give ourselves to attending this daily in our lives so that we may be able to help you whatever happens in your life. This is the answer to your problems. Jesus is the answer. So let us help you. And it would be our privilege to do so. You're married. This speaks to you. And so by the grace of God and for the glory of God, hold your spouse's hand really tight. But maybe you're single. Well, listen, if you are, then in light of this passage, would your affections for marriage and your provocation towards pursuit of it only ever increase? I mean, marriage is a wonderful thing before the Lord. Proverbs 18 verse 22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. I mean, if you, if you want a greater provocation, I don't know where you're going to find it. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and, and give, receives favor from the Lord. That is a great thing, a great means of grace. And so if you are not married and you desire to be married, I want to encourage you with this scripture, provoke you to pursue it all the more. And yet in reality, maybe for some of you, particularly if you're a little older as a single, Maybe this passage isn't a source of provocation for you at all. Maybe it's a temptation for you. A temptation for you to question the goodness of God. And if that's your situation, I get that. And I'd get how you get there. Maybe you're someone who loves Jesus, you... You're passionately pursuing Jesus. You love the church. You want to give yourself to the church. You want to spend your whole life serving Jesus. And yet the cry of your heart is, Lord, please give me a spouse. Please give me somebody who I can work this out with for your glory for the remainder of our days. Lord, I don't want to run alone. Would I run this amazing race with a spouse? And yet even though that's been the cry of your heart, it is a hope deferred again and again. And again, and your heart as a result is sick. So this isn't a provocation to you. Actually, it's a temptation for you. A temptation afresh to wonder what on earth the Savior is doing. 
Why has he not given you the desire of your heart? Because you would never consider divorce. You just want somebody to hold. Well, my friends, it's, your, it's my prayer for you as I've considered you greatly this week and indeed prayed for you this week. That this text wouldn't be a source of temptation for you, but instead would be an unexpected source of comfort for you. Because here's the reality in verse 1. It says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. He was only there because he was on the way to Jerusalem and to the cross for you. He was on his way to die in your place, to take care of your greatest need. He was there to undergo the suffering of God's righteous anger and to have his arms stretched out on a bloodied cross so that you could be forgiven of your sin, so that you could be redeemed, so that you could be adopted into the very family of God, not only today, but for all eternity as we all together await the marriage supper of the Lamb. So I want to encourage you. You may have questions of why. And I can't help you with that. It's one of the few jobs that you can actually say that. You know, you take your car into a mechanic, and you say, why is this doing this? And he says, I have no idea. But as a pastor, we have to say, I don't know. I don't know why you're not married. And in truth, I grieve with you on the same thing. And as a pastoral team, we're committed to praying for you that where it be the desire of your heart to be married, that God would answer that. But I want to encourage you, what Scripture does give us is not why, but who. Who's at the bottom of it all? And he can be trusted. Charles Spurgeon wonderfully says it this way, let him pass to you for a moment. He says, remember this. Had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are, Divine love would have put you there. And so he would, my friends. The one who died in your place will never let you go. So though you may not understand why, from this text may you know who. And may you see him even now on the way to Calvary for you. Maybe you're a teenager and you're wondering What on earth has this text got to do with me ever? Why am I in the room? Why can I not be outside doing something that might be useful? Well, if you're a teenager, I want to encourage you, this passage speaks to you. And in light of this passage, I want to encourage you to never lose sight of the high and holy calling on your parents' life. Your parents sacrifice a lot for you, no doubt. And part of their commitment to you is their commitment to one another. The reason why they're still together is, by and large, God's profound grace, but it is also because your parents have committed, by the grace of God, to working things through for his glory. And so when your parents are saying, hey, can we just have five minutes to talk? Don't think of that as a bad thing. Think of that as a good thing, because there's a high and holy calling on their lives. They need to work through their marriage for the glory of the Lord. When your parents are going out on dates, don't go, oh, again. Go, this is good. 
And I want to encourage you as a teenager, find a way over the next week to appropriately thank your parents for their profound commitment to one another. Praise God that they're still together and have been able to be an example to you as you grow up. Don't take that for granted. Be aware that's their commitment to Scripture and enjoy it and honor it and appreciate it. And for all of us then as a church, just in closing, I want to encourage you, may we never lose sight of the sanctity and holiness and treasure that is marriage. We live in a world that is constantly seeking to undermine marriage. We live in a world that is constantly seeking to ridicule it, make fun of it, change it around as fits the culture. But we're not called to stand on culture. You know where we live? We're aliens in here. We belong to the kingdom of God and we're living for that day. And so when it comes to marriage, would we be, for the glory of God, a city on a hill? You don't want to know what that looks like? What it looks like then when it comes to marriage is understanding that from the beginning, God made the male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. Well, therefore, God is joined together. Let not man separate. That's our commitment. So married or single, would we treasure and honor the holiness and sanctity of marriage? And would we be the city on a hill that God's called us to be, whatever the culture says? And would we truly then deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him? It's all about him. So let's live for him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, what a precious moment it is afresh to realize that marriage was your idea. It wasn't about my celebrant or my country. It was your idea. The joining together of a man and a woman in holy union for your glory. Oh Lord, would we be committed then as your disciples to seeing marriage as you see marriage? Would we treasure it and see it in sanctity and holiness? And would we honor it for your glory? Oh Lord, I do pray even afresh now for all those that are not married, but who desire to be. Lord, would we be a church that is sensitive to that? And would we be a church that where appropriate, we grieve with them and cry out to you with them for their desire to be married? Lord, would you grant their desire? A desire that is most often given by you. Would you grant their desire in your timing and for your glory? But while they wait, would they find a sweet peace in you? The one who even now is on his way to Calvary for them. And Lord, for all of us then as a church, would we realize that even in our marriages, it's not about us. It's all about you. And so would all gaze go to you. And would our lives align ourselves for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.